Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up, getting area youth into the workforce. Why the Urban League of Greater Atlanta and the At Promise Center are coming together to host a youth job fair. Also, the Southern Poverty Law Center is eyeing Atlanta as base for a new complex. We'll hear about plans for a community-focused campus. CEO Margaret Wong joins us. All these are important community conversations coming up. But first this, in coastal Brunswick, it's week two of the jury selection process for the three men charged with the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. Gregory and Travis McMichael and William Bryant are all charged with murder in the February 2020 death of Arbery. Now, throughout all of this, hundreds have consistently been demonstrating outside the Glen County Courthouse. Attorneys and the trial judge will continue questioning potential jurors once, one at a time today. Superior Court Judge Timothy Walmsley says he may not seat a final jury of 12 people and four alternates until next week. In other news, it is estimated nearly 64 million Americans are eligible for a COVID-19 vaccine, but have yet to get the shot. While the push remains to also get a booster, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky says the unvaccinated population is key in reducing new infections. Vaccination continues to be the best way to protect ourselves, our families, and our communities from COVID-19. Expanding vaccination coverage will not only reduce transmission of the virus, it will also help prevent new variants from emerging. Meanwhile, the coronavirus outlook in Georgia continues to improve. In fact, COVID-19 case levels and hospitalizations have steadily declined for nearly two months. Now, the highly contagious Delta variant fueled Georgia's last wave of the pandemic, which peaked in early September. Still, federal data, data shows most Georgia counties still have substantial levels of coronavirus transmission. Now, the state's vaccination rate continues to improve, but it is slow. It's slow. According to the State Department of Public Health, 50 percent of Georgia residents have completed a vaccination series. Still, that remains one of the lowest vac- vaccination rates in the country. And now, as we get ready, Kevin, cue the music. That is our unofficial Braves in the World Series theme music. <laughs> Game one of the World Series is tonight in Houston at Minute Maid Park. Of course, it's the Braves and Houston Astros. Now, this is a best of seven series. For those that don't know what that means, well, it's the first of four wins. Well, they're the champion. Now, throughout the team, there's a similar attitude that it's about seizing this moment. Here's what Braves general manager, Braves manager Brian Snicker said addressing the media. It's been awesome just to think of 
where we've come throughout the year and, and um, now to put ourselves in this position, it's really, really something special. Braves first baseman Freddie Freeman adds, while, yes, it's nice to get to the World Series, there's more work to do. We've been preaching in our hitters meetings the last couple of weeks is the moments trying to turn them into incredible memories. And we've been able to do that the last couple of weeks. So this is a moment and we still got, a, you know, a few games to, to make and turn into incredible memories. So that's what you, you wait on a lot. Everyone's excited we got here. You know, it's been a long time for the Braves organization to get here, but we know we got four more wins to go. And it's pretty easy to balance that when you know what's at the end of the, at the, end of the tunnel. That's right. Starting pitchers for tonight's game, Framber Valdez for the Astros. And throwing for the Braves, Charlie Morton, who was with the Astros for two seasons. Game time is 8 p.m. Send those positive vibes down to Houston. By the way, ticket prices for the World Series have they've increased. Yeah, that's not that's not a surprise. And you if you find a deal that's good to be true, guess what? It probably is. Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr is warning folks about if you're gonna try to re- Buy, if you're going to try to re- buy resale tickets, uh, watch out for scams this week. Why? Well, the attorney general's office recommends checking if a resale site is accredited with the Better Business Bureau. Don't buy them from somebody that your cousin knows down the street and to be cautious with offers that are below market value. No disrespect to your cousin. Just saying. If you do manage to grab a pair, the attorney general advises against posting a photo online Check this out, where scammers can pull identifying information like barcodes to create fake tickets. Be careful out there. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. You know, typically around this time, certain job sectors tend to start gearing up for the holidays by hiring seasonal workers. Delivery giants such as FedEx and UPS, those fulfillment warehouses, and of course retail. But we're still in the pandemic, and that will still have an effect on customer habits. And then, of course, that's the supply chain that is still, well, backlogged. Now, locally, in an effort to put to match young people with employers this fall and winter, the Urban League of Great Atlanta and the At Promise Center, we focused on them before, are coming together to host a youth job fair this week. Ebony White is the program manager and youth young adult services at the Urban League of Great Atlanta. She joins me now to talk more about this. Ebony, thanks for taking time. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Rose. Thanks for having me. How are you? Doing fine. Let's let's begin here because we know that the nation's overall unemployment rate last year increased to levels not seen since the 1930s. But I, well, folks may not realize that this was even, it was extremely worse for youth and young adults. I imagine y'all had a lot of folks that were calling, needing assistance, wanting to know, could you help? 
Yeah, we 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 definitely did. Um, and working over at the uh, at Promise West location, which is in Vine City, English Avenue neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a very low, I mean, high crime, high poverty area. So a lot of our youth who we serve, um, you know, they they needed money, and they, they needed a lot of services. So they came to us for career and workforce training and to you know get assistance with finding employment. What's the typical age group that you all are working with when we talk about youth and young adults? 16 to 24. 16 to 24. Mm-hmm. What what skill sets or what level of within the workforce de- the workforce development area were folks probably most looking to do work in? So most of our young people because they are still in school um, a lot of them are only eligible or ready right now for retail, hospitality, mm-hmm. warehouse and logistics jobs. So our career and employment specialist provides career readiness training with these young people um, several times a week to get them prepared and to and equipped with soft skills training. Um, we provide them with mock interviewing skills, teaching them how to dress for an interview and teaching them about conflict resolution, which is huge. Mm-hmm. We found, you know, we would get some of our young people employed and then two weeks later, they'll come back to us and say that they quit because of some type of, you know, confrontation on the job. So conflict resolution is something that we talk to them a lot about because of, you know, the situations that they deal with, their life situations. Um, oftentimes they're quick to react Mm-hmm. So, you know, our, a, a huge chunk of our programming is, you know, teaching them how to resolve conflict. Do you all work with certain employers that are willing to, to they understand that, that folks are coming through a program, they understand there's some young folks, and depending on what you just talked about, that they actually want to partner with you all and kind of work with you all in getting young folks into these jobs? We absolutely do. Um our career employment specialist, our whole team um, really works together well. We we uh, have a lot of part employer partners in the community um, because we are housed um, on the west side. Mm-hmm. We seek out specifically employers on the west side because we want to eliminate transportation as a barrier to a lot of our young people. So we actually have some employers um, from the west side who will be coming specifically uh, to provide job opportunities to our kids on the spot. Ebony, I want to go back for a moment because when we talked about last year and obviously the pandemic, which still continues, uh, and the work that you all have been doing, what has been the takeaway, though, for you in terms of what can come out of all this? Because, again, I've said this so many times, Ebony, you know, this the pandemic, everyone talks about how the pandemic has amplified all the disparities and inequities that exist in, throughout so many quality of life sectors. But for you, what do you hope will come out of this in terms of more programs, whether they're from the federal level, state or local, to help this particular population, this teens and young adults? Uh, what I hope to see um, definitely is more programming that's geared toward their interests right now. And, and it's it's needed, but a lot of uh, federal funding is, is geared toward um, second chance programs. And that's needed. Mm-hmm. Um, there's somebody that's, you know, uh, provided for at risk. We like to call them at, at promise. promise. Mm-hmm. We like to call them at promise youth, but a lot of money is uh, 
focused on at Promise Youth, but uh, I would like to see, you know, based upon the feedback that I get from the youth here, more programming geared toward their interests. A lot of our kids are creatives. So music programming, um, digital media programming, uh, and more hands-on. Uh, a lot of our kids, you know, communicate to us that they want to be in programming where they can use their hands. Mm -hmm. Are you, are you... I'm not sure what that looks like right now, but that's, you know, the feedback that we get. And so we bring folks in, we bring professionals in to, you know, expose young people to careers in the in the fields that they have interest in. We have profiled the Ad Promise Center before, but for folks that may not be familiar with it, this is probably a, an ideal partnership for you all with the Urban League. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the Ad Promise Center is a Atlanta Police Foundation initiative. And so the APF uh, hand-selected five different agencies to, to put under one roof to provide services to youth and young adults on the west side of Atlanta. The second Ad Promise Center is over on Metropolitan. There's going to be a third one opening on Campbellton Road um, and brought us in this building to provide services under one roof to the youth and young adults um, in in this area. Well, for those that are listening, let's talk about what's going to take place. This is going to take place Thursday, October 28th. And for folks that may know someone or someone who's listening, if they want to be considered for on-the-spot employment, what should they do? They can go to our website, www dot u-l-g-a-t-l dot org or they can call me directly at 404-449-6286 or they can just show up the at promise center is located at 740 cameron m alexander boulevard mm -hmm. with two blocks up from mercedes-benz stadium um show up at 5 p.m we start at 5 p.m our great partner, Chick-fil-A, is going to be providing meals for the first 100 people who show up. Mm -hmm. uh, we have 14 confirmed employers who are going to be hiring youth and young adults. Should What else should they bring in terms of identification? They bring their identification and a resume is preferred. But uh, if not, we have computers here. We have a, a computer lab. We have printers. So if they needed to you utilize those um, tools when they get here, we can definitely get them printed out for them. The voice you hear is Ebony White, the program manager in, in youth for and young adult services at the Urban League of Greater Atlanta. We're talking about youth unemployment amid the pandemic and also an upcoming youth job fair. Uh, Ebony, let's go back for a moment because what are some of the, who are some of the employers that are going to be on site here? Okay, so we have uh, Dunkin' Donuts, Gusto Restaurant, Greening Youth Foundation, Juma, who we love, Chick-fil-A, FedEx, MARTA, Marriott Hotels, ABM, ABM Aviation. You mentioned sometimes transportation can be a barrier for some folks just even getting, obviously, to jobs. Are you all also helping in terms of maybe providing MARTA card or, or some type of, do you have any programs with either the ride-sharing companies? We do uh, provide those supportive services um, for our young people um, because we do understand that, you know, transportation is a barrier and we will provide them with MARTA assistance until they, you know, get a couple of paychecks under their belts. How often do you all have a job fair like this, Ebony? Pre-pandemic, once a quarter. Yeah. Um, this is our first, first uh, job fair since the pandemic and we are really excited to see 
you know, some type of normalcy return to the building and, you know, have everybody inside. We're going to be have lots of PPE in place. We're going to have masks available. We encourage everyone to wear a mask, but we will have PPP, PPE available for everyone when they walk through the door. Normally once a quarter and you all, this is, we've been in the pandemic, what, 20 months now? You all haven't been able to have a job fair. We haven't been able to, but what we've been doing is having virtual workshops where we have employers come on and we get our youth to join via Zoom and and let the uh, employers share their job openings that way. There's been a lot of conversation. I've done uh, quite a few of the mayoral forums, and in fact, too many to probably mention. (laughs) Glad (laughs) glad the election's coming up. Um, But there's always been talk about what do we do? And then you've seen them, and we've had this conversation before, but they call them, refer to them as the water boys and girls, just kids out selling water or what have you, or snacks trying to make a little income. What more do you think needs to happen? And I know you all can't do everything by yourself. And maybe this is where we talk about those continuing public and private partnerships. But what more would you like to see, maybe on a state level or local level, to help this particular population? We're talking, especially with, you know, black and brown kids, youth, and also in, in, in urban leagues. But this is a problem right. also in the rural communities. Right. I, I think the answer to that, and it's just me, but maybe more youth employment programs year round, not just the summer youth employment programs, but year round. What's the feedback been from, we call them the youth. We'll just collectively call them the youth. What's that feedback been like? I, I call them my work babies. Um, oh, they're excited. <laughs> that's such an auntie. That's such an auntie. Yeah, they're, they're so excited. Um, they want to know, you know, Ms. White, uh, what do I need to wear? And how do I need to fix my hair? And uh, when can I get my resume done? They're excited. They're excited because, you know, pre-pandemic, this building was just full of activity and life. And and we, you know, tomorrow, I mean, Thursday is going to be, you know, just so welcome and so refreshing to see people and young people back in the building. Is there a cap on how many y'all can accommodate for this job fair? We do have a cap. Um, well, Yes, we do have a cap that we can have in the building, but we have traffic control uh, monitoring in place. Um, and we're having a, actually having a meeting after this meeting, uh, but we will make sure that everyone is uh, maintaining social distance inside the building. And um, we have our employers set up in a huge open zone in the building where they'll be socially distanced as well. Because no we want to maintain every, everyone's safety. But no one will be turned away. Is that what you're saying? Nobody will be turned away. Again, it's to, it's at the At Promise Center West. It's at 740 Cameron Alexander Boulevard, 30318. We'll have a link on our website. And again, Ebony, for those that are listening, again, the criteria, do you have to be a certain age? You know, we don't want to exclude anybody, but you're hoping to attract. 16, 16 and up. 16. We have employers who will be hiring youth, and we have employers who will be hiring adults. And so bring a resume, valid ID. I- That's correct. And we'll see y'all on Thursday, 5 p.m. All right. Ebony White, the program manager in youth and young adult services at the Urban League of Greater Atlanta. Thank you so much for what you all are doing in the community to help our, our young adults and our youth. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much.
Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Yes, we know those municipal elections will take place November 2nd, and that includes the Atlanta mayoral race. Now, just over a thousand miles up north, way up north, the same for Boston. In fact, it'll be a historic victory for one of the two candidates. You'll hear more about them in just a moment. Why? Well, Bostonians will elect the city's first mayor of color. Philip Martin is a senior investigative reporter for the GBH News Center in Boston. That's an NPR affiliate. He joins me now to talk about his latest feature, which chronicles why black Bostonians have left the city and now call Atlanta home. Philip, welcome to the program. Hey, Rose, thank you very much. Um, And I'm just, you know, looking at you on Zoom and, you know, that hip hat, you know, (laughs) and that incredible background. You know, I I can see that Boston already has serious competition, even in public radio. Come on. It's unbelievable. Come on now. We didn't even mention that your Red Sox didn't make the World Series, but that's okay because our Braves (laughs) (laughs) Don't even go there. That's just wrong. (laughs) I have no sympathy. Y'all beat my Cardinals some years back. I have no sympathy for the Red Sox. That's right. Not just beat them. Shellac. Okay, Philip. This interview is over. You know, we're going to get to your piece in just a moment, but I want to set this up for our Closer Look listeners because there's a backstory at the core of this feature here. Tell us about it. Well, the backstory is Boston has always, for a long time, we're talking about several decades, had a reputation for racism. I mean, it obviously has a reputation for Cheers. It has a reputation for Mark Wahlberg. It has a reputation uh, for uh, for Aerosmith. But sadly, uh, Boston, because of the extraordinarily violent backlash to school desegregation in the 1970s, mm-hmm. a backlash exemplified by a black man being speared with an American flag, which has stayed in the American mind for decades, that is still the image for many people, particularly black people of Boston. And it's also uh, a reason why some Bostonians, quite a few in fact, over the last um, three decades, four decades have fled to uh, a number of places, principally Atlanta. And, you know, I think the listeners may, many listeners may also recall that during the, there was with busing and desegregation within the Boston public schools, there were some pretty violent, violent acts there. That still remains with a lot of folks as well, Philip. Well, that's true. And a lot of this was uh, was brought about because of the, the makeup of neighborhoods. Uh, these were essentially bastions. Um, you didn't have a formal border, but you had borders. The demarcation between South Boston, for example, uh, and uh, places like, like Dorchester was pretty stark mm-hmm. uh, because they were racial borders. Uh, you were basically told that you don't go there. And a lot of people uh, uh, believed on both sides of those borders, but particularly in places like South Boston, uh, that this is our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and they protected it fiercely. And that uh, came down to violence. It was racially uh, demarcated. Uh, it was uh, it was violent and it didn't wasn't just the school's roles. Uh, this uh, seeped into the nightlife um, and into other aspects of, uh, of society in Boston. And so on the heels of what will be an historic election result, whatever it will be for our listeners, uh, tell me about these two candidates, these two final candidates. Well, you have an unprecedented uh, race. Uh, in fact, the entire year has been unprecedented. We have an acting mayor now. Her name is Kim Janey. She's black and African-American, the first mayor uh, in, uh, of color in Boston's history. 
uh, which has been marked largely, uh, which has been marked exclusively by white males. Kim Janey, it was thought, would be in the final. Mm-hmm. Uh, in but in the primary, she was uh, defeated along with two other black candidates. Remaining are two formidable, uh, experienced uh, former city council people uh, who are competing now to become the mayor of Boston. One is an Asian American, a Michelle Wu. The other is an Arab American, uh, uh, um, Anissa Asabi George. And they are, um, uh, they, uh, one of them, of course, will become the new mayor of Boston. First time a non-white male uh, has, uh, will become the mayor of Boston. So what prompted you then to look at, hey, folks, black Bostonians have been moving to Atlanta. Well, as you know, Rose, uh, uh, we've had a migration for years. Isabel Wilkerson wrote about mm-hmm. um, the great migration and the warmth of other sons. Uh, her uh, a Pulitzer Prize winning National Book Award uh, winning book about migration. That was uh, folks like uh, my folks who went from Georgia, uh, for example, southern Georgia to Detroit. Um, cousins uh, who uh, are southern in everything but location and geography, mm-hmm. uh, uh, families uh, in Chicago, so on and so forth. Uh, and people move because of extraordinary racism in the South. Rose, the same thing uh, uh, can be said in many ways about Boston. You had a sort of a reverse migration mm-hmm. where people after the 1970s and during the 1970s uh, started moving southward. Uh, the beneficiaries of their movement, because many of these people were and are uh, uh, decidedly in middle class, college educated, uh, but the principal beneficiary has been Atlanta. Uh, and it's true for the Northeast in general, with over a million people in the, ball, in the Atlanta area uh, having come from the Northeast of, of, uh, in, within recent decades. And so you came to Atlanta. We're going to take a listen now, and then we'll come back and mm-hmm. talk about it. This is Philip Martin. Kyle Wells has lived in several cities, but he calls Atlanta home. He grew up in the Mattapan section of Boston along Morton and Blue Hill Avenue, and by the end of high school was itching to go elsewhere. I remember distinctly for my kind of high school goal was to move out of Boston. Wells headed southward to attend college in the 1990s. Today at age 49, he works as a senior creative writer for a major sports network here in Atlanta. We speak in his expansive front yard on the city's southwest side, where a huge magnolia tree shades his house from the hot Georgia sun. Wells stays in touch with friends in Boston and has been watching the mayoral race from a distance. He says he was disappointed when neither of his preferred candidates, Kim Janey or Andrea Campbell, advanced. The fact that neither of the black candidates made it through, I'm not surprised. For blacks, there is still a a perception. We're we're minorities, but we aren't the, the ideal ones. And this former Bostonian seems unimpressed that one of two non-white female candidates is poised to take over the reins of city government. And so to the question, with Boston on the verge of electing its first mayor of color, how do former black Bostonians here feel about the city they left behind? There is no comparison. 49-year-old Chantrice Sims Holloman has lived in Atlanta longer than she lived in the Boston area, which she left in the mid-90s. Sims Holloman grew up in West Newton and says it was there that she was first called the N-word. In Boston itself, she learned to stay out of certain neighborhoods, she said, because of the color of her skin. 
an author and educator with a doctorate degree, Holloman found professional opportunities in Boston to be far and few between. My mother very much wanted me to move back home, and I told my mother that's important to me that my daughter grow up in a city where people look like her and are successful. My parents are still the only black family within three or four miles of where they live. Here in Atlanta, there is black excellence on just about every corner. Logan Gaskill agrees, yet he is also encouraged by Boston's mayoral race. That's progress. Like a lot of black professionals in Atlanta, Gaskill came here from the Boston area to attend Morehouse or Spelman. His father taught at Hyde Park High School during the height of desegregation. And Gaskell says he has watched over and over again video clippings of racial violence that erupted at the school in 1974. <laughs> Yet, says Gaskell, he is still put off by people who seem to view Boston only through the prism of that period. I moved to Atlanta for college, and I met a guy from Alabama or Mississippi, and he said, where are you from? I said, I grew up in Boston. He said, oh my God, it's racist there. And I just remember thinking like, dude, you're from Alabama or Mississippi. Like, it doesn't get more racist than that. But Gaskell says that perception is reality for many black people in America and that whoever becomes mayor of Boston will be tasked with updating that image. Atlanta native B. Maynard Scarborough worked for the city of Boston and the Globe and famously carved out a space for black and Latino people in the city's segregated nightlife by working with club owners and restaurateurs. We did those things because we had to. We didn't have anything to do. So we were a natural group that needed just a little organizing. Scarborough's enterprise was called The Loop. Most observers viewed it as a model of success for providing access to the city's often closed off institutions of culture and nightlife. Yet Scarborough moved back to Atlanta in 2005 for reasons that he says are fundamental to the notion of basic freedom. Atlanta is almost like we, we feel like we don't have to ask to do. You, you feel empowered. It's our town. I never felt, even though I was there for 20 years, I never felt like Boston was my town at all. And I love Boston. George Chip Greenwich grew up in Boston's Mission Hill in Cambridge and has straddled the Mason-Dixon line via Delta Airlines for more than three decades. We're talking inside a cafe in Boston's Nubian Square. Greenwich also loves Boston, but says his heart is in Atlanta. I was very interested in being in both of those spaces and places. In Atlanta, there are more opportunities for people to actually become an entrepreneur. There are more ways for creatives to be creative because there are more spaces to do so. And also there's a cheaper rent district and arts district. Here it's very impossible for a young person that's not in school to actually make it. Greenwich created and runs a nonprofit called Greatest Minds, tasked with building the next generation of black leaders in Boston, which achieved majority minority status in the 2000s. Greenwich left Boston in the 1990s to attend Morehouse, but has lived in both Boston and Atlanta since then, and is now pursuing a PhD at Georgia State. Greenwich recently hosted a live debate in Dorchester with Michelle Wu and Anissa Asabi George. These two candidates are younger, but I think there's some older structures that have to be addressed. Both have to make sure that there are resources on the table for people looking at the quality of life issues, why they should stay here and be around here. Back in Atlanta, we asked black residents if they would consider returning to Boston permanently in light of its changing political leadership. No. <laughs> I don't even have to think about that. Chantrice sims Holloman cites the seemingly interminable racial battles over Boston exam school admissions as an example why. I've gotten used to my daughter 
graduating from uh, math science magnet school. There, there's just a difference where there's certain battles you don't have to fight. Logan Gaskill is also not planning to return to live in Boston anytime soon, despite what he sees as political progress with this year's mayoral race. He's concerned about those who've fallen through the cracks of Boston society. I would like to believe it's gotten better, but I mean, I think about this story that the Boston Globe did about why do people think Boston's racing? They did more stats to kind of show like wealth gaps and jobs. And I don't know that Boston has done anything to dispel that. Those interviewed agree that Atlanta is far from a paradise for black people with its high poverty and crime rates, class divide, and blue political status in an ocean of deep red conservatism. They also acknowledge that racism is omnipresent in the U.S. But here, these former Bostonians feel more cushioned from racism's impact. Boston's mayoral race is unlikely to change that perception. In Atlanta, Philip Martin, GBH Boston's local NPR. And that was from Monday's conversation with Philip Martin. He's a senior investigative reporter for the GBH News Center in Boston, an NPR affiliate. And Philip's latest feature, yes, is on why black Bostonians have left the city and now call Atlanta home. You can hear that entire conversation if you missed it online at wabe.org. As Closer Look continues here on 90.1, Atlanta's choice for NPR, I'm Rose Scott. On now to our next conversation. It's about the Southern Poverty Law Center. It is in its 50th year, founded in 1971, within a mission to, quote, ensure that the promise of the civil rights movement became a reality for all. Well, these last five decades, the Law Center has gone beyond just fighting legal battles for social and racial justice, but also monitoring hate and extremist groups and focusing on immigration and LGBTQ issues. Based in Montgomery, the SPLC has offices in Atlanta, Tallahassee, Miami, New Orleans, and Jackson, Mississippi. But now they're looking at a major, I guess we could call it a major new development. We'll see what Margaret calls it. Margaret Wong is the CEO of the Southern Poverty Law Center and joins me now to talk more about this and more. Margaret, thanks so much for taking the time. Glad to have you back. Rose, it's always such a pleasure to get to spend some time with you. Thanks. You know, we spoke uh, with you a while ago, I think, after being named CEO, right? We did, yeah. All it's right. been quite an 18 months, huh? Uh, yeah, the, thanks to the pandemic. <laughs> so let's get an update. Uh, first of all, how are you doing? Oh, aren't you kind? I'm doing well. I've moved to Montgomery. I'm really delighted to be back here in the South. There is so much happening, and there's so much work to do. Yeah, let's talk about how you all have been managing through the pandemic pandemic. Uh, like everybody else, we all had to shift. Been using that word a lot, and and sort yeah. of reimagine how we do what we do. I uh, take it y'all had to do the same thing. And it's still ongoing. Uh, we actually opened our offices last summer for for vaccinated staff who wanted to come back in. Mm-hmm. We then closed it again in August because the COVID rates were going back up, and we want to try to keep our staff and our allies safe. And now we're thinking about reopening again. So um, it, it's never a dull moment, thanks to the pandemic. Well, that, before we get into what y'all are going to do, is this the still the best time to do it, to think about, you know, this major new new development uh, when we're still in a, in a pandemic? Or this was always part of the strategic plan for the Southern Poverty Law Center? I would say that it's it's always been part of the plan since I arrived, which of course has only been in the last 18 months. 
But in some ways, Rose, the pandemic makes it even more important. Mm. Everyone is rethinking the ways that we work, why we do the work we do, how we do it most effectively. And so this internal reimagining of the Southern Poverty Law Center's presence in Atlanta is very much part of this larger reimagination that you talked about and wanting to have a different presence in the communities that we're seeking to serve and work alongside and wanting to be part of the Atlanta community in new ways. So it has certainly been advanced or escalated by the pandemic, but it's it's definitely part of a larger plan. Well, you all here in Georgia, you, your current office is over in Decatur, and you love Decatur, but you say that lease ends in summer 2024, and you all want to relocate to Atlanta proper to be closer to the communities that you serve. How big is the campus or facility in Decatur, that office space? So we're looking for uh, a multifaceted complex is I think the phrase we've been using. We're looking for at least 60,000 square feet for our staff or our uses and for our work. But we're also envisioning that the space could in fact be larger depending on how we can respond to community identified needs and aspirations for the space, for the opportunities there. So one of the reasons we've done this RFP to invite potential partners to submit ideas is that we'd really love to hear what ideas are out there. Are there possibilities for the SPLC to support economic development, affordable housing opportunities? Those are all things that that could be in the mix. You all call this a community-based campus or complex. Is this going to be part of that, that new approach then when you talk about, you know, being closer to the communities that you serve? meeting rooms or or conference rooms or or space for people to come to seek advice or counseling, what have you. Is there there a template somewhere? Is there another organization that you can point to and say, we want exactly that? Pick it up, duplicate it, put it in Atlanta. (laughs) Well, you know, the more more conversations we're having, I have a feeling we are going to find more of those examples. Um, we, we have a, a colleague and friend uh, who actually worked with our uh, real estate developer, um, Kirk Rich, with Avison Young, and she moved her organization's headquarters from downtown Atlanta um, mm-hmm. to the west side. And that was Families First. Mm-hmm. And so we've taken that as, as a bit of a model. You know, why did they move? They wanted to be closer to the communities that they serve. They wanted to be a space where the community would feel it was available and accessible and open um, to people dropping by and accessing resources. So we love that notion. Of course, our work is quite different from Mm -hmm. Families First, but trying to think through how we can be part of the community, how we can be accessible to the community for things that we might be able to do, but also how we create space that people in the community can use. So to your point, maybe having space available for entrepreneurs to try to build out new businesses or for smaller community nonprofits to have access to meeting rooms or or office space that they otherwise might not be able to afford. Yeah, I tell you, Margaret, 60,000 square feet, that's that's pretty large. That's, that's, I mean, it's it's not a small parcel. (laughs) It's not, it's actually quite big. And, And we're much smaller at the moment, Rose. We have about 90 employees in Atlanta right now. Are you all looking for to 
a new build or would you want to find something that's already existing in terms of brick and mortar and then build out from there? I think we're open. And again, that's part of the request for proposals. Um, if, if there's existing space that could be repurposed, I think that would be terrific. If there's not, we're open to considering doing a new build. But the key for us is going to be finding the right partners, making sure that we're working with people who really have the community's interests at heart. Is there a side of town you'd like to be on? Everybody's going to the west side, so. <laughs> well, we've been looking at both the west side and the south side mm -hmm. um, and really trying to keep options open. If if there's an idea somewhere else, we'll absolutely consider it. Consider it. But for us, this is about being accessible to the communities that we're seeking to support in our litigation, mm -hmm. in our programs. And so we want to be not perhaps indicator where we're not probably uh, collaborating mm -hmm. with or working in communities there, but in other neighborhoods of Atlanta. You are the perfect person to get this question other than maybe the CFO, but what's your budget? <laughs> you, you knew that was coming, Margaret. Come on. Well, to be honest with you, we don't know. <laughs> I mean, I actually have, believe it or not, I've never done a real estate deal like this before. Um, I've been in nonprofits my whole life. This hasn't actually been an option for me in the past. So I'm learning a lot about this, Rose. But what I would say is probably anybody who does have real estate experience can surmise if we had to build out a 60,000 foot complex with other services and resources available to the community, there's, I'm sure there's a natural price tag mm -hmm. for that. I just don't know what it is. Before I let you go, Margaret, I do want to shift for a moment because there is a lot of work that you all do. And of course, we are still in this space. We're dealing with the events from January 6th and also with just learning still that there's so much more that you all need to do in terms of monitoring some of these hate groups and these far-right extremist groups. Uh, what has this last 20 months revealed for you all? January 6th was quite, an, quite a moment for all of us. I think even though I have colleagues at the SPLC who were warning about the possibilities of January 6th happening, it still was, it was still shocking to see the Capitol overrun that way and to see the level of violence being demonstrated at that rally. And then we saw the shootings in Atlanta yeah. in March. Mm -hmm. And you're right, this, these kinds of strikes and attacks have been ongoing. So I think where it leaves us is that it's more important than ever that communities are working together to track and monitor the activities of these groups to share resources with one another, and most importantly, to strengthen the community's abilities to respond when they see trouble. Earlier this month, you all released, which, will, which was a series of you call your first investigative report, Tech Watch. And this deals, yeah. and of course, we're in that space now where, where all the big tech companies and social media companies are having to explain as best they can in terms of what are they doing to protect probably our, our youngest population and also at the same time you know folks not you know trampling on people's first amendment rights and all that but this tech watch this is a resource that's new for you all it is and it reflects the reality of extremism over the last several years uh, more and more we're not seeing people gather in person and this predates the pandemic we see people gathering online across state lines across national lines 
and they're exchanging information and resources in ways that we have not seen before. And all of this tells us that we have to get better at monitoring extremism on social media platforms, on, on encrypted digital sites, because that's where we're gonna learn about the threats that we are facing today and tomorrow. The good news is that the Biden administration is actually committed to digging into this far more than any previous administration, and that gives me some hope. Is online, in the cyber world, is that become the new way of, of attracting or recruiting people or just even disseminating this information? Yes, online platforms make it easier. Uh, makes it easier for people to find you. You know, the, all of the recent uh, reveals about the Facebook papers have shown that Facebook makes it really easy to find hateful or extremist ideology on their site. Twitter is the same. January 6th was, that was actually organized on Twitter, and we've done a report about that. So we need people to be aware of the risks. We need parents to understand that children might be exposed to these risks when every time they go online. We need communities to have strategies for calling out this behavior and for preventing it. A lot more of our work is also going into prevention, trying to make sure that communities know what they can do to stop people getting interested in following extremist ideology. What's your response when you hear, because there is a side that says, well, it you can't, can you hold the other platforms, I don't need to mention their names, can you hold them accountable? Should they be held accountable for what is posted or, or disseminated on their platforms? So if the it's just, if is, it's just narrative, if, if it's just, that's not, you know, inciting speech, right? violence. Yeah. The reality is that all of these platforms are able to monitor and prevent hate speech and extremism from being spread. It's not a question of can they do it? Mm -hmm. It's a question of will they do it? And honestly, at this point, I believe that if the companies have continued to demonstrate that they're incapable of meeting the needs for today, there is going to be regulation on this. And I think our policymakers in Washington are going to set the standards for how these platforms have to do this work. It's it's a question of commitment. It's not a question of ability. You said it's a question of commitment, but you know, as you and we both know, we're going into 2022, so politics enters into this. Uh, what are you all going to be watching as we and we have elections here in, in November in, in the Atlanta area, but. Look, we know 2022 is a major election year. Uh, you're going to have a lot of groups on all from all different areas, all different sectors. What are you all going to be paying attention to? We're going to be working with partners on the ground in Georgia and across other states to make sure that we're trying to turn out and mobilize the vote, trying to get people who are not uh, engaged in civic participation at this point, give them opportunities to do so. We're going to be litigating against governmental efforts to suppress the vote, already doing it, likely will continue and scale up that work over the next year. And we're going to be monitoring the connections between elections and extremists. More and more, we're seeing extremist candidates running for office. We want to make sure that the public knows who they are, what they stand for, and that that is part of the public debate about their candidacy. And then meanwhile, that leases up in 2024, so you got a couple years. But in in Margaret's crystal ball, when would you like to have the ribbon 
cutting ceremony on your facility here, your campus in the Atlanta area? I'm so excited about the possibility of this. And the problem is we have great ambition. So uh, hopefully summer of 2024, we'll be cutting that ribbon. But I'm truthfully, I'm just excited to see the process play out. I think even the, the initiative to engage with communities to talk about what's needed, those are all going to be wonderful contributions to our work to try to make our work more meaningful and impactful in Georgia. And will you, will you move from Alabama to Georgia? Sadly, no. Uh, but I have a feeling I'll be visiting Atlanta a lot more. Why can't you move? A lot of great space. <laughs> well, our headquarters are going to stay in Montgomery. And I think there's a wonderful reason for that. Yeah. That is the history of the civil rights work. Absolutely. But, but yep. we hope to re- replicate this process across all of our states. And Atlanta is going to be our first one. All right. Margaret Huang, the CEO of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Let us know when you locate a facility, a 60,000 square feet facility. Let us know. Keep us posted. I promise to do that. And thanks, Rose. Great to see you. Same here. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let me know, or anybody else, but you only have my email. So let me know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, as you always do, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Kevin Rinker picked this going out music, this Kevin, I feel like I should be like, you know, at a nice restaurant with. Yes, my lobster will be ready in a second and some Chardonnay. (laughs) Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.